Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia on Air, the podcast of the Royal College of Anesthetists. My name is Dr. Ashwini Keshkamal. I'm a specialty doctor in anesthetics at Dartford and Gravesham NHS Trust, council member of the Royal College of Anesthetists and chair of the SAS committee. In this first of the two episodes of podcast on SAS doctors, we will talk about SAS doctors through a clinical leader's perspective. I'm joined today by not one, but two clinical leaders who are inspiring in their own ways and paving the path for others to follow. It's indeed my pleasure to introduce Dr. Sarah Hare. Sarah is a consultant anesthetist in Medway NHS Foundation Trust. She's been a clinical director since February 2020 and is a member of the Royal College of Anesthetists National Clinical Leaders Executive Group. She is also a Deputy Director of Health Science Research Center at the RCOA. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. And Dr. Lucy Williams, who has been my colleague on the council who demitted last year. Lucy, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, so just, just to fill in um, my current role, I am the clinical lead for the anaesthetic and critical care department at the Great Western Hospital in Swindon. And I've been doing that since November 2020, um, overlapping a little bit with my council tenure, which did make things a little bit busy for a while. Thank you, Lucy. And I definitely have to congratulate Lucy Williams, who's been awarded the College Medal. She's been a role model for the SAS grade and also for her work on sustainability. I think she's been an embodiment of change for how SAS anesthetists are contributing to college life. Um, as a college lead for sustainability, Lucy oversaw the implementation of the college's first formal sustainability strategy. So welcome, Sarah and Lucy. And Let's just dive into the discussion. Uh, the college census 2020 revealed a gap of around 1400 anesthetists and the gap is only expected to widen in the coming years with an obvious impact on the clinical services. So as clinical leaders, how do you see SAS doctors who obviously are a significant proportion of skilled workforce work collaboratively yet have the opportunity to achieve their career goals. Sarah? Yeah, so I've re been reflecting on this quite a lot since I was appointed a CD and, and I was appointed a CD just before um, that dreadful pandemic thing kicked off in February 2020. And, and at that time, I was I was really struck by how every single member of our team lent in um, to help. But in particular, I was struck by how my group of sometimes unseen, previously unseen, perhaps unnoticed workhorses, the SAS doctors, really came to the forefront in their leadership, um, not only in their clinical leadership, but also in their ability to have a steady steer on what was happening during quite a chaotic time. And so I was really struck by that. And I was also then immensely so, sort of... I was, I was immensely impressed by how some of them, who were our older members of the team, I know they won't mind me saying that, was still out there 
working in what we did at the time felt was quite a, a dangerous environment, wasn't it, for us all? So so how did I how do I see them as being a part of my team? I see them as being integral to us being successful, either in an emergency situation like that where we don't know what's going on, or in the day-to-day -day running of my department where I, I would need some senior pairs of hands who who can help me and our colleagues achieve what we need to achieve. But I think it's um I think it's becoming particularly relevant at the moment because we're facing such a shortfall in our workforce uh, and I know that I won't be alone in my own department in facing this challenge. The elective recovery programme at my hospital means that we need to meet 104% of 2019 elective activity. So this increased pressure uh, is alongside an increasing number of emergency attendances as well. Coupled with retirements, um, so I think I think the workforce census a few years ago said that up to 4.2% of consultants are retiring each year in 20 in 2020. So retirements, people going on sabbatical, people leaving the profession, people going part time, people dropping their PAs means we simply can't meet that demand, um, which needs to be provided by senior anaesthetists. And so the SAS team are my my right hand wingmen and women to to achieve this um, safely and successfully whilst giving high quality care. So they're they're integral to everything we do. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, so Lucy, what do you think? So obviously the service demand is uh, definitely uh, under pressure. However, for an SAS doctor, because compared to the cohort of trainees, they will have protected training time and um, in fact, now with the new curriculum, they do have the um, educational development and time. Now, the, we are a cohort and um, of course you represent one of us. Um, how do we uh, try and progress in our careers or how, how do we go about it? And how do we advocate it to the clinical managers? Because then, you know, there is always this myth that SES doctors are for service provision yeah I, I think that's um that's really interesting and uh, I mean I agree totally with everything that Sarah has been saying um reflecting my own experience as well um I think um one of the things I've really tried to do in my role um and I don't know you'd have to ask my team how successful I've been is to to recognise um, that we can build a career structure within a department to progress people through the SAS grades. So um, we've got a variety of different contracts now and with the introduction of the 2021 SAS contract, um, that's, that's given us a bit of um, flexibility. It's been quite difficult and perhaps um, we'll talk a bit later about the, the the challenges of just moving people onto the new contract. There's there's all sorts of HR issues around just doing what seems to be the right thing. But I'm trying to build a department where we have a sort of gradation of um, input so that we can use the expertise of um, SAS doctors at the relevant stage of their career. So for instance, as Sarah was talking about, the senior members of the team who are very, very experienced, um, is the best use of their time to be doing a one in eight on call or is actually it much better for them to be doing um, uh, sort of the more complex day to day surgical stuff. Um, 
whereas the younger people can do a bit more on call. So I'm trying to kind of build within the department a, a structure where people can see the progression that if you come in as a clinical fellow and we do need clinical fellows and we kind of um, we're going to focus on SAS, but I think we have to forget uh, we have to remember the locally employed doctors as well. They come in and they work basically like the trainees. My specialty doctors who are on the new contract are coming in and doing a one in 12. So you can see a progression from the, the sort of out of our service provision to more of a balance in your work. And then the most senior, while they're still doing on call, they're doing a one in 16 on call. And I know some people will be listening to this and thinking, how do you manage? Um, and the answer is with great difficulty. But um, I, I'm really keen that um, we can establish a structure where people see this as a normal career progression, because I think we've got too many departments. And I, I know this talking to um, lots of people around the country where SAS doctors are just stuck on a one in eight um, on call and there's no thought given to their career progression. It's tricky to make the time, but there is SPA time, I think sometimes SPA time is not really used adequately by specialty doctors. Um, it's not always on the rotor as their SPA time, and I think it should be. Um, and I think they, um, I would like to see them demonstrating a little bit more than just the basics for revalidation. And as part of job planning discussions and appraisal discussions, I encourage people to talk about, OK, well, what's next? Where am I going? And I've got several members of the team who are um, sort of taking active steps to further their non-clinical development, because I think that's the that's the gap. So when we were mentioning earlier about the new contracts, trying to appoint people who are clinically excellent is not enough. They For the new contract, for the um, uh, the, the uh, person specifications, sorry, I just couldn't remember the word there, the person specifications, um, there are lots of things that are non-clinical. So, so I'm very conscious that these are things that need to happen, but the individuals need to take ownership of that as well. I cannot personally supervise the career development of all of my SAS doctors. They have to take ownership too. Yeah, I think that's a really important point is about the ownership um, and that. But then from my point of view as clinical director in a department where I'll be really frank, um, I know that some of my consultant colleagues loved the fact that we had incredibly senior uh, SAS doctors on the rotor, which because it meant they could stay in bed all night. And of course, uh, that's that's quite nice, isn't it, really? Um, that actually to to fight for them to come off the on-call rotor to be seen, actually, perhaps this is time we acknowledge their seniority and we need to give them a different role within this department, um, requires quite strong um, willpower to to do so when 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 you're changing something that has been the status quo for so long. Um, but the the empowerment of some of our SES doctors is the more junior ones for as, as you were just talking about Lucy I think is going to have to come from us as senior leaders because I feel there's a mindset um, amongst some of my team um, perhaps that well I am here to be a workhorse I've been treated as a workhorse for so long so I'm going to behave as a workhorse and actually saying to them no I have much higher expectations of you uh, can be and I will back you to do so 
I hope can be quite empowering. And as the department now has moved to support this, I feel that many are leaning in and actively coming to seek opportunities in leadership, research, management, development programmes, um, which perhaps wasn't the case maybe four or five years ago. And I'm pleased, I'm pleased to see that. But it is a mindset. Yes, it is. It is a culture, isn't it? And that actually um, needs to change. And I think the new specialist grade post that was introduced in 2021 is paving that path. And that's going to um, empower SAS doctors or, you know, step up who are really highly experienced. So employers obviously have expressed a desire to recruit, motivate uh, doctors into such posts. And I know that both of you have recruited specialist grades in your directorate. So Sarah, how has your experience been um, in uh, recruiting uh, these senior members of SES doctors? And what were the hurdles? Because nationally, we know that um, the specialist grade posts have been advertised, but not as expected. Well, the first hurdle was making sure that our HR team actually knew what this was um, and what I was asking for. The second hurdle was getting the money together uh, because it costs a lot to employ a specialist doctor at the level that I would like to employ them at. Um, and probably the, the smallest hurdle was talking to my consultant colleagues about this, because actually, once we discussed it, and we have a couple of very strong um, spe now specialist doctors within my department, um, once we discussed it as a group, uh, it was seen that this is a very, very good thing. I mean, the HR and the side of things was was a disaster, if I'm really frank. They had no idea what I was asking for. They muddled it up with the old associate specialist role. Then when I wrote the advert really, really carefully, um, following all the guidance, spent ages on it with um, with not on my own. I did it with uh, Mohan Kumar, who's one of our specialists uh, and is now on uh, on works at the college with you guys. Um, <laughs> then we put it up onto the um, NHS jobs and I. Rob Fleming, who's a very active SAS doctor on Twitter, got in touch with me because he screens all of these adverts and he wrote to me directly and he said, Sarah, you've got the whole advert wrong. Uh, this is not the advert that you should be putting out for this. And I was mortified because all HR had done is pulled an old trust fellow, God knows where they got it from, and put it up onto the internet as an advert. So we had to pull it all and start again. So that those hurdles, that administerial hurdle were, were really significant actually. The funding side of things, I converted some of our vacant consultant role funding uh, budget lines into specialist positions. Um, and I think that was important because that demonstrated to the financial and management that I had these doctors on a par. I had expectations the same as a consultant job. Um, and I think that's probably the last thing is that these jobs I made it really clear to my whole team that these are not easy win jobs and that's all the SAS doctors in my department. So I made it very clear that this is a career progression. You have to demonstrate a lot of commitment, um, a high level of ability, a good, excellent CV uh, to even be shortlisted for these roles. This was not just because you've worked here for a long time that you're going to get this role. Um, this is high level. And, and there were some tough conversations around that. Um, I'll be very, very honest, but I think actually in the end, it means that I've got a fantastic group of specialists. In fact, uh, one of whom is starting an external appointee. She's starting today 
in the, in the department and I can't wait to welcome her. So I hope we've, we've jumped some of the hurdles, but there's still hurdles with things like getting the SAS Charter recognised about reviewing and uh, how we're doing. I think we're right in the beginning stages of this to make sure that we're we're doing this right. I think I've still got many mistakes to make uh, and I'm, I hope we learn from them. That's that's quite interesting, isn't it, Sarah? Because I think that's the whole thing. The awareness about the specialist grade role has not been clear. And this is at all stages. It is, um, you know, uh, from members of SAS doctors as well. They are not clear themselves. They sometimes think that, oh, if they've been in a role for uh, X number of years, they are automatically, uh, you know, they progress onto that. Well, no, clearly not. And it is a competitive post, as you clearly said. But was that difficult to negotiate? You just uh, said that you had to convert the consultant funding, the vacant consultant post to the specialist grade. How did you uh, talk that to the managers? How did you get that right? Because that would be something that quite other employers probably are struggling to do. I think the way to do that is using your data. So I think data speaks loudly when you use it properly. So when we're trying to reach 104% of elective capacity of 2019, and you can map that just as um, Lucy said earlier, we can map that to our workforce capacity, the amount of DCC direct clinical contact they have and use your numbers to demonstrate your shortfall. And I could easily demonstrate that I had at that point 7.5 whole time equivalent consultant short. Now, mapping that to the disaster of our workforce, which we're facing after the 2011 workforce review, uh, it was very easy to demonstrate that we weren't going to be getting the number of consultant applicants that we would wish for to cover those consultant posts. Um, and so I think that was useful to be able to demonstrate we will not cover this unless we think outside of the box and we do something differently. And I have a very supportive divisional medical director actually who really understands this. So that, that was really how I, I converted things. But then I had to really demonstrate that the appointees were going to be functioning at the same level as consultants. Um, and we made some bottom lines really for that. Uh, we had to be able to say that these are doctors, senior doctors who can manage a very small, very sick child in the middle of the night who needs surgery. Because ultimately, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Those brown trouser moments, whereas consultants, you've spent all those years training the leadership skills, the team um, management skills, the crisis resource management skills. They have to have that ability to function at this level. Um, and they needed to have a portfolio that was on a par. So the ability to supervise juniors, uh, the ability to deliver on good projects that will further the department. So I had to make sure that that was very, very clear. And that's really how I how I swung it. Um, to 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 use that finance. So Lucy, you are probably the first SAS doctor who is also the clinical leader of the directorate. And um, there is a collective aspiration across the four nations to develop compassionate and inclusive leadership. Translation into practice remains a challenge or has always been a challenge. Uh, one of the things that Sarah mentioned was, you know, the lack of implementation of the SAS charter and the SAS development guide shows that rhetoric has not been converted into reality. So what are your thoughts on this harsh reality? Well, um, 
this is this is a tough one. So whilst I was still at the college and was representing um, RCOA at the academy, I was tasked with writing a paper about exactly this, as you know, and it was the most challenging, one of the most challenging things I did in six years at the college. Um, I think one of the problems is that it is so variable everywhere. So it's really variable between trusts, but it's super variable even within a trust between departments. So you have some departments in a hospital where they do not value their SAS doctors and really don't treat them well at all and haven't heard of the SAS charter. And there are other departments where um, actually, the SAS doctors, and I hope this is a lot of anaesthetic departments, but I know it's not all of them, where the SAS doctors are very much seen as part of the permanent team. They're valued and they're included in decision making and department meetings, and um, they're expected to participate beyond just turning up and doing the day job. Um, I think. My conclusion when I wrote the Academy paper was that that it is it is about culture and culture is is slow to change and it's difficult to change and it's got to be um, us as leaders, whether it's at the college for you still Ashwini or for Sarah and I within our own department to be the example of best practice and um, in my case to some extent to be a role model and say this is this is what can be done. This is how it can be. Um, but but I, I'd come back to this um, thing I mentioned earlier about individual responsibilities. So Sarah's just alluded to the fact that some of some of her doctors um, uh, possibly were thinking, well, I'm just a workhorse. I'm quite happy to turn up, do the work and go home again. And um, if if they don't change their mentality and their expectations, then there's no real way to to sort of help them progress because they're not engaged in that change themselves. I think another important aspect of this, which we haven't touched on so far, is the um, EDI aspects of it. So we know that the SAS group of doctors um, is, is much more diverse than the consultant or anaesthetist in training group. Um, we have um, a high proportion of international medical graduates from all over the world. And um, a lot of the dissatisfaction, I think, comes from um, some some subtle cultural misunderstandings and misinterpretations, um, but also this thing called the implicit curriculum that if you've been brought up within the UK medical training setup, there is stuff that you just absorb that you don't even realize you're doing it about how things are done, how people interact, how they talk to each other, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, what you should say to whom and not what to say. So um, you you miss out on that if you haven't come through the system through medical school and sort of early medical training. And then if you add in the factor of English not being your first language and English being a language full of idiom, it's an incredibly rich language. Um, but it does make it, I think, quite difficult um, as a second language, even if you are grammatically fluent, to really pick up on all the stuff that people are saying. And I, I've been um, sort of conscious over the years of a lot of misunderstandings and the way people say things, perhaps to a SAS doctor that may be interpreted as being disrespectful, 
aren't necessarily meant in that way. And similarly, things that SAS doctors say, they're just speaking in English the way they would speak in their own language, the, the form of words, but it's misinterpreted by the person they're talking to. Um, so I think um, we're going to see over the next couple of years, I know there's some stuff going on in our college and there's been um, a, a, a really, really frank and quite brutal report that the Royal College of Surgeons did looking at um, uh, equality, diversity and inclusion. Uh, and, and I think whatever the politicians are um, ranting on about at the moment about woke culture, I, I think as compassionate leaders, we absolutely need to be mindful that um, you, you have to think how it might look from the other person's point of view, but that applies to all of us, not just to us as leaders. Um, it, it's, it, it's important that um, all of us as workers take that view as well. I think that's, that's a really nice comment because, uh, sorry, uh, thinking about how we develop people is really, really important. You, you may not naturally just know all this stuff. So empowering and enabling our SAS doctors to develop is part of it, not just clinically. And so if there are leadership programmes within your trust, it's making sure that SAS doctors have an equal opportunity to join those leadership um, programmes. So, for example, we have MediLead, which is aimed at junior doctors in training. Um, uh, and we have the um, Advanced Medical Leadership Programme, which is aimed at newly appointed consultants. But actually, I think I'm quite pleased to say that at Medway our SAS doctors have an equal access to both of those programs and indeed do do attend and have time made for them to go and do it be a part of the projects and similarly training them in how to do things like audit quality improvement um, and research is also important and, and we need to bridge that gap and I think us as leaders who are lucky to have positions where we can influence that's how we can use that power to improve things the associate PI programme in research is often not seen as accessible for doctors who aren't in training positions or who are consultants. Similarly, being um, a local PI of a research study seems to be inaccessible. Now, it isn't, but that's not really common knowledge. So encouraging people to be leaders for Nella, obviously I have a vested interest in that, uh, or PQIP, or other research programs that are going ongoing are really, really important because it builds a CV, but it builds confidence and communication skills and a knowledge, that self-knowledge that actually I am more than just a workhorse and I'm valued by my department. So I think that's something we really need to work hard on doing at the college. Yes, thank you, Sarah. And I think you really touched upon that empowering and engaging the SAS through various portals. and. Um, Lucy, as you were saying about, uh, we touched upon um, this uh, yesterday while we were recording with Robin Gowry that yes, SES doctors, a majority of them are from our international medical graduates. So it's really important that they do have the induction and are supported by a mentor or they do have educational or clinical supervisors when they join. So that will be um, the learning process for them. And we as leaders or um, uh, anyone for that matter, senior members who are working in the NHS with experience can support them. Um, and of course, yes, you said the soft skills about you know, language and communication. And if a person has a mentor that can be dealt with, I think on a one is to one basis. And then, because obviously we know that 
this is a cohort which traditionally has been referred to the GMC as well. And uh, we know about the report now. So um, it's interesting. So, and that's exactly the thing that what an SAS advocate can be helpful. So having a SAS advocate in every trust or, um, will bridge that gap because this is a person who is going to work closely with the LNC, with the SAS tutor and managers and will be bridging the gap or will act like a third pillar to support them. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, bringing that up. Um, that was really interesting. So um, we've coming to, you know, on the same line. So the DDRB report in 2020 showed that the rate of sickness was higher among the SAS doctors compared to trainees and consultant colleagues. And I think over the years, this has been shown that um, uh, the rate of sick, uh, sickness has been slightly higher than uh, the, the peers. So how do you tackle this in your respective directorates? And what are the support systems? Because this is something that's reflective of the well-being and culture. Sarah? Wow. I hadn't ever really thought about this question until until you raised it um, earlier, and I think it's a real a real eye opener for me. I, I don't think I was aware of these statistics at all. So I think in part that's going to be something we have to do is make sure that we understand the why and the how this is the case. I can't even begin to guess why it is. I mean, I, I can, but I, I'm not sure I should uh, about why. How do we deal with it? Well, I hope. We just remain open. I hope you have good processes in place uh, to get in touch with our our colleagues when they are sick to make sure we do uh, return to work interviews. I mean, that was something that I had never even really knew existed as a doctor, a return to work interview until I became clinical director. And then I really couldn't understand the point of doing a return to work interview. It's just another thing that I have to do in my diary. Why am I doing this? Um, but I've come around to seeing that actually it's quite important to understand why people are off and that it's not seen as a pejorative thing to have this conversation when someone's been off for a little while and to understand then things that are um, going on for each individual but also at systems level that I may need to tackle to make things better and I think one of these are uh, so, for example, two of my SAS doctors are, are older. Um, uh, they haven't gone down the specialist route, so they haven't been appointed as specialists. They remain on quite, a, or they remained on quite a taxing rotor. And, and actually, I did notice how difficult things might be becoming. And putting in some changes to their rotor, uh, it's very difficult to do that. To just take someone off a one in eight rotor is really not easy because there's money that then needs to backfill it. So. Whilst everyone will want to do this, sometimes it, it's a challenge and understanding how you do it is difficult. And um, But we've created a job share um, for, for them and hopefully that's taken some of the onerous shifts off them and put them into a, a much better space for working uh, in a way that suits perhaps the way we want to work as we're all getting a bit older. Um, so I think you need to have good processes in place, return to work interviews, conversations and an open culture um it, it is really important i don't want to encourage people though to come to work when they don't feel very well but maybe that has been the other difference is that junior doctors in training are beasted to come to work even if you don't feel very well there's a culture there you have to keep going you've got to be here you've got to do it and i'm not saying that's different for sas but like you said about that implicit learning and the implicit culture perhaps they haven't been exposed to that same same thing and it's not neither neither side is good but i don't know the answer 
quite what we do, just open open access, I hope, open and supportive. Any thoughts on that, Lucy? Yeah, um, like Sarah, I, I kind of cast my mind over who's been off sick over the last 18 months. And um, it, it, it's been a lot sort of shorter term because there's been so much COVID. But actually, I've had several people off on long term sick uh, and most of them have been consultants. Um, so so this wasn't my experience. But like Sarah, I can imagine lots of reasons why this might be the case. Um, I think it's really important to keep the lines of communication open. So um, clinical directors are very busy, but my door, when it's open, it is genuinely open and people come in and say, can I have a chat? Um, as clinical lead, you learn things about people because they do come and have conversations that you can then follow up with check-ins um, informally or, or if it's if it's more important, you think this this needs um, definitely keeping a closer eye on. You can make it more formal and say, right, okay, we're going to talk about this again in a month's time. Um, just those chats when you're um, in the occasional sort of slack time when you're just sitting down having a cup of tea with somebody instead of both being on your phone, actually have a talk and say, what have you been up to? What's on your mind at the moment? Um, making sure that people have buddies, mentors, where that's appropriate and they want them. Um, we have quite good staff support setups in our trust, um, I should say award winning. Um, and um, so people can can access that. But uh, I've also sort of gone through occupational health processes with um, a number of um, members of the team. Um, and uh, that that's always interesting because occupational health are, are, are always um, very supportive and make their recommendations, which are never what your AMD and your divisional director want to hear, because it usually involves doing less work or stopping on call or something. So, <laughs> but but you have to you, you have to take that into account and have a grown up discussion about what is the best way forward. Um, so yeah, very similar to Sarah, really. I think it's making people feel valued as well and the short-term sick leave you know is inevitable it's not neither here nor there what we're talking about here also perhaps is those days here and there which are a distress call because they add up into something else and I think making our colleagues feel valued and I don't mean as in you're valued the list will go down if you're not here come and do the work I mean as in you are really valuable to us as a team and it matters to us. Your contribution is is big and it matters, not just as a workhorse, but in general. And I and I think that's important. And I'm sh I'm sure there's well-being experts out there who are going, oh God, no, what she's saying, you're you're trying to make them, you know, come to work when they don't feel very well. But I don't mean that. I mean that trying to avoid the things that make someone feel so stressed or tired or upset that they cannot come to work is really really important and some of those things are soft within a department it, yes there's the things that are tangible such as a rotor and pay and a locker and all those kind of things but some of it is soft stuff and if we get that right and avoid people going away then we avoid all the problems about coming back because that's not easy and I'm sure similar to Lucy managing people coming back after a prolonged period off on calls or off difficult things is is it's really, really tricky and making sure that I think our SAS doctors have the same access to um, things such as occupational health um, who are snowed under themselves or understanding that they can refer to practitioner health um, online. All these things need to be made accessible as well. Um, and also, I think there's something about responsibility. So 
allowing our SAS team to understand that they have responsibilities as well that are just as important as others within the department makes them empowered, which I hope adds them feeling valued, which I hope, you know, will support them to feel that you really matter. And if you will miss you when you're not here, not which is silly, but I think it's important. Um, no, I think I think that's really important. And I think you touched upon it quite rightly, because feeling valued and a sense of belonging is so important. And then people will and, and an open culture being able to talk about, well, I'm not having the best of my day or just anything. Having that open culture, um, being able to talk is really important. So um, on, on similar lines, of course, with, with a bit of, bit of an educational progression. So obviously we know it's recommended that, you know, HE and its equivalent should ensure that all NHS trusts have a SAS tutor who can work with their local director of medical education to support SAS doctors to have access to both generic and specialty specific CPD opportunities. Uh, and this is through uh, the trust study leave or through SAS development funds. Uh, this is not quite the reality, is it? You well, see? yeah, it, it's um, it varies again a lot. So, so I'm fortunate. Um, our trust has had an SAS tutor basically since they were um, a thing. And um, I think most of the time it's been an anaesthetist, um, including me for a period. Um, the Southwest generally has a very strong network of SAS tutors um, with regular meetings and a SAS associate dean as well. Um, England is different from the devolved uh, administrations in terms of um, in Scotland, the, the health boards work very differently and their equivalent of the SAS tutor um, covers more than one hospital, which presents some challenges. Um, but um, I, I think there's reasonable coverage, but um, the, the, the quality of the advice and also just frankly, the practicalities from having done it, um, it. It's very easy if you're in a large department with lots of SAS doctors to talk to all of them. And as an anaesthetist, you can talk to all the SAS surgeons, but it was really hard to have contact with the SAS physicians um, and, and people who were working in other parts of the hospital or indeed in the community who came under our trust. Um, uh, you, you have to, as the tutor, work really hard. Um, and there, there was always the engagement issue that you would sort of offer all sorts of nice things and um, and then people just didn't turn up or didn't answer your emails, which which gets a little dispiriting over time. But absolutely, uh, it, it, it's an important role. And, and if, if only within England for administration of the um, SAS development funds, however your deanery and trust has elected to do it. Um, and that's that's a really great resource. I've been here 15 years and um, when I came, the study leave budget was £1,000, which sounded really generous and was compared to lots of other trusts. It's still £1,000 15 years later, um, but you can do about a third as much with it as you could do. So um, it's a real bonus as a SAS doctor to be able to access additional funds to support your professional development. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm going to leave it open to the two of you. Is there anything that you want to? Yeah, I, I, I did just want to close by saying that actually 
it's important we get this right. So with my clinical director hat on, this is really important to get right. Um, there's a lot riding on it. And when I look at my SAS team from the most junior to the most senior, I realise at the moment that there's such variation that it's difficult to get right. And I realise that the needs of some are different to others. Some need to go elsewhere and get training elsewhere. Uh, and actually we're setting up some programmes which at the moment are variable because everyone's needs are so different, but we're setting up programmes where they go to other hospitals and they are going to get their experience in whatever it might be, so that when they are coming to apply for specialist roles, hopefully at my hospital, um, they are really competitive uh, to get it, um, to get the post. And that's being welcomed amongst my SAS team. And I think around the region, it's getting out that that's happening because I'm getting lots of emails from people who want to come and join my department as a SAS doctor. Um, which is good. But with it comes difficulty because when I am sending one of my SAS team off to uh, London for a year, I've got to backfill that post and that requires money and it requires um, time to, to get that organised and it may contribute to the merry-go-round of SAS doctors also, which perhaps is a unseen thing. And, 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 and so I think there's 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 things that are we really need to work out about how to do this training um, and also to stop to to really address that difficult question of is it is it second choice is it is it second rate is why are you not on a on a training program to become a cct and why are you looking at this that you've failed that you're doing this route perhaps it's a route that suits you but so I think there's a lot of things that we still need to get right I think there needs to be some real conversations amongst clinical directors um, around the country to make sure we are working with our SAS team to get this right um, but it's a buyer's market so we also need to make it very competitive and very very attractive so there's lots we need to do to make sure we get the best candidates for for our jobs so i think there's some exciting opportunities out there for sas doctors if they look for them that that's that's really interesting isn't it because i mean i will i'll probably say that the last one is recognizing and maximizing the potential and um how do you go about it just i, I pick up from uh, much of what sarah has said there um, we just have to do it, um, that there is no alternative. Um, I, I think it's really important to um, get away from the um, second class career programme idea of SAS doctors. Um, we're, of course, in an interesting time with um, core trainees going into their top up before they apply for ST4 posts. Um, and we've had a super bunch of CT3s who are leaving, who've all had a great time, great training experience. And any single one of them in a heartbeat, I would have back as a specialty doctor. And I've actually spoken to them and I've said, look, it's a slightly uncertain time for you. I know it's it's tricky. Nobody is, is certain that they're going to be getting a ST4 place because of the limits on numbers, but you will have invested then quite a significant amount of time in being an anaesthetist and you are going to um, have really quite decent skills by this stage. Very, very much qualified to be a specialty doctor. So I, I think the greatest tragedy would be to to lose some of that cohort because they think if they don't get an ST4 post that, oh, it's all up and um, why am I wasting my life? 
but we have to also run that alongside attracting um, uh, excellent international um, candidates because realistically that's where our workforce is going to come from and um, my experience with international recruits um, has has been quite interesting over the last uh, 18 months um, is some excellent um, some in their first post in the NHS, some in their sort of not their first post, but not been here that long. But others, um, it's it's been really it's not worked out the way I would have liked, and we haven't been able to get them doing the on call that we need them to do. And part of that is on us because when everybody's so stretched, to have a really robust supportive system is is difficult. Um, but that's why my new specialist, my external appointment, who's starting this month, just not to be completely outdone by Sarah, um, part of her role that went out in the job description is that um, she's going to be um, developing and delivering a really robust support and induction programme for international graduates, because that's where I'm going to be getting my doctors from when the little flood of core training top ups have moved on and are doing other things. So I'm, I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board and make sure that I can really support people to come and work in this country and and deliver safe service and develop their skills in a new country. Yes, I think I think there are many at present times. I think it's important to recognize that there are many ways of being an anesthetist and not just uh, you know, a formal training program. We we know that there are many CSER programs that have cropped up across the country, uh, and um, it, it's like running parallel pathways. So we will have probably in the coming years even um, people who otherwise would have gotten into the formal training program now would may be interested in doing the CSER programs because then uh, you know. It's, it's easier and they would stay in one place to get all their competencies and it is still the experience that they need. And of course, we know that there are uh, anesthesia associates who will be coming up and then they would also form a little cohort, if not a massive, but it, they would be a cohort who are going to anesthetize our patients. Um, so, I think this um, the second rate or uh, first is is I think it's going to be a myth, and we will be we should be attracting um, candidates, not just trainees, but from abroad, uh, depending on what pathway suits them best. I think that's that's the way forward, and it was going to be an individual choice um, mm. eventually. So thank you so much, Sarah and Lucy. I am really enjoying this conversation and I think we can go on for, I, I think I can talk to you for the whole day. Uh, but in the interest of time, um, what would be your uh, closing thoughts, Sarah? Uh, my closing thoughts. So I think ultimately I just am super grateful to my new specialists, quite a few of them, Dr. Williams, just saying. Um, <laughs> Uh, who've joined my team um uh, and to, I'm, I'm i'm really grateful to them and to all my sas doctors for their hard work at, at medway i think their contributions are huge and massively valued and i hope they will go on to be role models um wherever they end up uh, and i think there's every opportunity out there for them 
I would um, echo that absolutely. Um, I, I think we've, we've just got to break away from this idea that you're um, a SAS doctor and you just do lists and that's all that you do. Um, there is so, so much more out there. I haven't got enough consultants to do all the SPA sort of lead roles and things that AXA requires or that we need in addition to AXA. Um, I, I can't do it unless I've got a contribution from um, all the senior members of the team, whether they are consultants or whether they're on other SAS contracts. Um, so, uh, yeah, they're, they're an absolutely vital resource, particularly in a DGH. I think Sarah and I are coming from the same place. It is a bit different in teaching hospitals generally, um, but DGH is absolutely reliant upon SAS doctors for um out of hours work and for a huge uh, part of just day to day service delivery. Yes, thank you both. So I think we've, we've had a wonderful um, uh, 30, 40 minutes of this and uh, the take home messages for everyone out there is we need um, engaging, empowering SAS doctors. They need to have appraisal and job planning processes in place. They need to feel belonged. Um, uh, we've also touched upon autonomy, which the new specialist grade post brings itself, uh, supporting them in competencies or career progressions, needing that development and support. And of course, um, recognition and rewarding this cohort, which is more than 23% of the anesthetic workforce in today's times. So thank you all for listening and for further information, please refer to the RCOA Academy and Association SAS pages. Thank you for listening to Anesthesia On Air from the Royal College of Anesthetists. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review it helps others find our podcast. If there is a topic you'd like us to cover or you'd like to feature in the podcast, please email podcast at rcoa.ac.uk. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.